Hello, my friends. I was away at Abi Yamini's wedding in Australia. I'll give you a report on that and what else I got up to down under. And then I'll talk about news here in Canada. There's so much going on. We got to catch up. But before I do, let me invite you to become a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. It's the video version of the show. Just go to rebelnewsplus.com and click subscribe. It's eight bucks a month. You get this show every weeknight, plus four weekly shows made by my colleagues. That's 36 episodes a month. Just for eight bucks. You know, we need your money because we don't take money from Trudeau. We got to get it from somewhere. And I do not want to be compromised with that government money. So we ask you to subscribe. Please consider it at rebelnewsplus.com. All right, here's today's show. Tonight, a month has happened in a week. It's November 2nd, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Shame on you, you censorious bug. Hey, nice to see you. I sneaked away to Melbourne, Australia, but that's not really a sneak. It's more than 24 hours each way by plane. What was I doing there? Well, my friend Avi Yamini, two-time Viewer's Choice Award winner for Best Rebel, he got married. And about a year ago, during the deepest depths of the lockdown, he invited me. I said, look, brother, I am not allowed to get on a plane in Trudeau's Canada. But if that ever changes, I said, I'll be there. Well, time passed, and I was taken off the no-fly list, or rather, to be more accurate, the unvaxxed no-fly list was dissolved. And so I kept my promise and schlepped down to Melbourne for a lovely wedding. I really enjoyed it. Avi, I don't know if you know this, he is one of 17 siblings. And uh, a lot of them were there. It was quite uh, surreal to be in a room with so many Avi lookalikes. It was mildly uh, terrifying, but they're great dancers. It was a very fun wedding. Um, And while I was down there, I hadn't been in Australia in five years, I met other Australian journalists and troublemakers. I met Rukshan Fernando. You might recall him. He was one of the six journalists that went with us to Davos, Switzerland, to do reportage on the World Economic Forum. Rukshan, actually, his real-life job is a wedding photographer, and he was indeed the photographer for Avi's wedding. He was a wedding photographer when weddings were canceled because of the lockdown in Melbourne. He took his camera to the streets and he recorded the freedom protests that were a regular occurrence there. And he showed just by pointing his camera at the world more journalism than the official big shots in Australian media. Obviously, he and Avi became close friends during that time. It was nice to meet him in person. I also met some of our Australian Fight the Fines clients. As you know, our Fight the Fines project is 99% here in Canada. We have 2,100 cases, but there are about 40 people that we've helped in Australia. I met some of them, and I met our lawyers down there. And, you know, I talked to one of our lawyers down there, Madeline Smith, who made the point to me that all the traditional civil liberties lawyers in Australia, they went hiding for two years, just like they did in Canada and the United States. And she had to build a civil liberties-oriented public interest law firm from scratch because the old, reliable civil libertarians didn't want to get involved in this fight. It was, it was like I was hearing myself talk about lawyers in Canada, too. So it was very interesting. I even met uh, Avi's bodyguard, and you might recall this terrible moment when police decided to 
try something new. Normally they would arrest Avi, but they knew we were suing them for that. So they tried to go after Avi's security guard. Well, we defended him and it was a pleasure to catch up with him in person. Melbourne, as you know, was the city in Australia that cracked down the hardest on its own population. In fact, so hard that tens of thousands of people fled the city and had net out migration during the lockdowns. It's easy to understand. Now, like other places around the world, they're trying to gaslight people. Even the police force, the Victoria police, are trying to gaslight people. You know what that word means, right? It means to lie to people about what they saw and heard. Oh, it wasn't that bad. Oh, we were all in it together. Oh, no, we never did and said terrible thing about you. I see the Atlantic magazine, which is owned by Steve Jobs' left-wing widow. They're calling for an amnesty. Now, we're calling for an amnesty, too. I don't know if you know, but in Alberta, we're having a project called Lockdown Amnesty because the government there is still prosecuting people for lockdown offenses that happened one or two years ago. Um, And we're saying, no, it's time to have an amnesty there. Danielle Smith, the new premier in Alberta, campaigned on turning the chapter from the dark lockdowns and actually apologizing. And you might recall this video where our own Celine Glass asked her, where's the apology and where's the amnesty? Remember this? During your campaign, you said that not only would you issue an apology to those prosecuted during COVID restrictions, but you would also grant them amnesty. When can we expect those apologies? Um, I can apologize right now. I'm, I'm, I'm deeply sorry for anyone who was inappropriately subjected to um, discrimination as a result of their vaccine status. I'm deeply sorry for any government employee that was fired from their job because of their vaccine status. And I welcome them back if they want to come back. As for the amnesty, I have to get some legal advice on that. Um, and so I've already asked my staff to, um, to, to request that advice so I can see how we would be able to proceed on that. My view has been that these were um, political decisions that were made, and so I think that they can be political decisions to offer a reversal. But I, I do want to get some, some legal advice on that first. Would that also have to do with the timeline for the proposed amnesties? Um, I, I, I would have to see, you know, if I can, if I can do it, I, mean, I will do it at the earliest opportunity. So I'm, I'm hoping within the next, within the next week, I'll get that legal advice. Thank you. Thank you. That was a great question and a great answer, a heartfelt apology. And I know for a fact that the premier has been inquiring with her government about stopping the prosecutions. Um, So when they say lockdown amnesty in Alberta, that means stop prosecuting them already. But in the pages of The Atlantic, that fancy billionaire's play thing, hey, everybody gets to have their magazine, right? Jeffrey Bezos of Amazon gets to own... um, Washington Post, Carlos Slim gets to own New York Times. Why can't Steve Jobs' widow have the Atlantic? But what uh, the Atlantic means by having an amnesty is they mean, hey, don't get mad at us for what we said and did to you. It hasn't flipped around yet in Canada. In Canada, we're still prosecuting victims. Just yesterday, for example, Pastor Tim Stevens got a verdict in his case. Remember him? He was the Calgary pastor who was arrested in front of his crying children. Remember this shocking, tear-jerking video. God, we just do pray that you thank you and build your church through this time. Give yourself glory. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't be angry. Don't be angry. No, no anger. Okay. Okay. 
put you in the back, we'll just put your hands on the side of the car pump. So nothing sharp, nothing basically at all in your pockets, nothing we need to worry about. Well, that case finally went to trial, and it was thrown out by a senior judge. I think that's five or six cases in a row that have been thrown out by the courts. And, and there's a reason for that. I think the mania of 2020, 2021 is now gone, and even the courts are starting to say, whoa, we did what? It's all like waking up in the morning with a hangover and saying, I did what? I think a lot of institutions are saying, yikes, I did that. And the Atlantic is saying, no, 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 um, let's just pretend not to talk about it. But the judges are saying, no, these cases are not in the public interest to prosecute. And I think it's safe to say there's no longer a reasonable likelihood of conviction. I mean, Pastor Tim Stevens won. Arthur Pavlovsky won. These cases are being thrown out. And the idea that we take courts and judges and prosecutors and public resources to go after some mask offense from two years ago. It's laughable, and our courts cannot be laughed at. There's important work for them to do, like going after real criminals. I got an idea, though, because it's a little bit hard for the Premier of Alberta, Danielle Smith, to call off these prosecutions when the Justice Minister, Tyler Shandro, used to be the health minister who laid these prosecutions. I think he's in a conflict of interest. It's a repudiation of what he did. But if Tyler Shandro, the Justice Minister of Alberta, uh, insists that he uh, that he get his way rather than the new premier of Alberta, and I hope that's not the case. If Tyler Shandro thinks that it is in the public interest to sue people for old offenses, and it is reasonable likelihood of conviction, all right, I'm not sure if I agree with him, but if that is the way, may I draw your attention to Exhibit A? May I direct the jury to the gentleman in the colorful tie? His name is Tyler Shandro. That's him at the Sky Palace where he was having an illegal gathering at the height of the lockdown. He just didn't think anyone with a telephoto lens would capture it. So if, if it's okay to prosecute pastors like Tim Stevens and Arthur Pavlovsky, if it's in the public interest, maybe there should be a private prosecution of the justice minister himself, Tyler Shandro. I think that's something Rebel News reviewers would get behind. There are other prosecutions afoot in Lethbridge Peaceful truckers, peaceful truckers who were part of the Coots blockade, well, they're being prosecuted. In fact, they have a court hearing this week. The prosecutor is seeking 10 years in prison. They're going after working class truckers. They're going after churches and small businesses. I think it's time to have an amnesty in Canada for those people. It's amazing to me that in the United States, it's the locker downers that are saying, hey, please, please have amnesty on me. We're not that far ahead in the cycle. I think that soon people will turn their rage against the locker downers and the abusers. We can see things coming apart at the Trucker Commission of Inquiry in Ottawa. We can see every day that the whole narrative that was cooked up about the truckers was fake. 
It was fake news designed by fancy PR firms, including a crisis communications firm called Navigator that was paid hundreds of thousands of dollars by the Ottawa police to gin up claims of violence and extremism. Uh, the commission has seen email and text exchanges amongst politicians trying to gin up the media to say that the truckers were violent and a threat when they were not. And this is useful for two reasons. First of all, the whole point of this commission of inquiry is to see whether or not it was justified to put the country under martial law if there was such a grave and present danger to Canada, the sovereignty of the country, or the safety of its people, that couldn't be handled by any other law. It's clear that there was no such grave threat to the country uh, because the politicians were literally trying to gin up more scariness um, to justify it. But second of all, we can see that this whole fake news industry, it's the government projecting onto you what they themselves are doing. The government knew the whole time that the truckers were not violent, that there were no weapons. Crime fell when the truckers were in the city. The government knew all that, but they lied and they found reporters happy to lie about it. The media party, by the way, is covering these revelations at the Commission of Inquiry, just like they covered the convoy in the first place. <laughs> They're carrying the government's water. I'm glad we are there. And I think Rebel News and some of our friends, for example, True North, are covering it too. Um, I think Rebel News in particular, we, uh, the, the guys and the gals are doing a great job. As you know, we've booked an Airbnb for the duration of the Commission of Inquiry. We have uh, journalists every day covering in real time. We're live tweeting the inquiry. We're making video clips. And every night at 6 p.m. Eastern time, we have a recap in the form of a live stream. So I think we're doing a pretty good job, if I do say so myself. But it's interesting to me to see different phases in America. The locker downers are saying, please don't seek vengeance on us for what we did to you. Uh, in Australia, they're, please don't think we meant it when we punished you. In Canada, behind the times as always, we're still prosecuting people who illegally gathered. That was one thing that was on my mind. It was I was traveling back from the wedding in Melbourne. Another was the exciting news that Elon Musk actually did go through with his acquisition of Twitter, the social media company. And one of the first things he did was sack the top team, including the head of censorship over there. And it's sort of fun to watch the owner of Twitter because he bought it outright. It's not a public company anymore. The, the sole director, I think, is Elon Musk himself. Um, and he's promising to have more diversity of views, which is the worst thing you could tell a leftist. They believe in diversity of every kind except of views. Elon Musk says he wants to have right and left represented, for example. Well, the left doesn't believe in that. There's one thing that he's announced already, which I just get a real kick out of. I'm not sure if you're on Twitter. There are hundreds of millions of people on, on Twitter. And like other social media, like YouTube and Facebook, you can get a little blue check mark that verifies you are who you are. It's useful, for example, if you're a big sports celebrity or a big politician and someone else might have a fake uh, account that is a fan account or a critical account or a parody account that's very similar to your own. I mean, Donald Trump's Twitter handle was real Donald Trump. I, I presume that means someone else already took Donald Trump. And how did you know it was the real president? Well, he had that little blue check mark. So the blue check mark was a way of verifying you are who you said you are, but you couldn't just ask to be verified. It was like a secret fraternity. You had to be invited 
or sometimes it just happened and you didn't know why. It was an insider's club, a kind of aristocracy, not a meritocracy. And it was sort of a pedigree, like, I don't know, going to an Ivy League university instead of just a community college. And one of the things that Elon Musk has announced is that he will let anyone verify their account for eight bucks a month. He originally was thinking about 20 bucks a month. Now, you should think, well, that's a good idea. Everyone should be able to verify that it's them. On many apps, we have to verify it's you. When you set up a banking app on your cell phone, you have to verify that it's you with a password. Uh, certain apps, you have to show uh, a, a picture of your passport or other ID. So the idea that you identify who you are on Twitter and have the ability to buy that, it seems sort of obvious, especially when one of the criticisms of social media is there's a lot of fake accounts and bots or robots. No robot is going to spend $8 a month and have their account verified. But the thing is, it doesn't just mean a source of revenue for Twitter. I mean, imagine if 100 million people decided to get verified. I don't think that many will. Let's say 10 million people get verified. Every month, that's eight bucks times 10 million people. That's almost a billion dollars a year when you think about it, right? A billion dollars in revenue just from ver letting people verify themselves. It's a great business idea for Twitter, but it's also useful for individuals to say, yes, this really is me. And I think it could improve the Twitter experience in that you would know someone was real and not just some robot, but the reaction to this has been gorgeous. Here's a tweet by Stephen King, uh, the horror author, who is outraged, outraged that he would have to pay anything for the privilege of reading his tweets. He says he should get paid. <laughs> no, he's not mad that he'll have to pay eight bucks. The guy's a gazillionaire. He's mad that the lowly peasants can get the same status as he has. He wants to be special, and that's what he thinks the blue verified checkmark is about. He doesn't want just the hoi polloi to have it. You've probably heard of Stephen King. He's uh, one of the best-selling horror fiction novelists of the generation. But uh, Rachel Gilmore, you probably haven't heard of her. She's the TikTok queen of global <laughs> news, which is pretty low on the totem pole, but she has that blue verified checkmark. Um, and she, for the same reasons as Stephen King, is appalled that mere peasants will be able to buy her verified status. She is quite a piece of work. She, she tweets how proud she is of her, I don't know, third, fourth, fifth jab. She actually made this little video about why you should not allow unvaccinated people over to your family Christmas dinner. I don't know if you ever saw this. Take a look. Are you going to invite your unvaccinated relatives to sit at the dinner table with you this Thanksgiving? Experts are saying you might not want to risk it. Here's why. According to one expert from McMaster University, vaccines are super effective, but they're most effective when you're surrounded by other vaccinated people. If you invite someone who isn't vaccinated, there's a risk of having a breakthrough case. Now, breakthrough cases are pretty rare. There's only ever been about 8,000 in Ontario, but kids can't get vaccinated yet. So part of keeping those kids as safe as possible is telling that one uncle who chooses not to get vaccinated that he might have to sit this one out. One bioethicist said that that's actually the more ethical thing to do. She also said you should try talking to your relatives about how safe vaccination is. The best way to do that is to start the conversation from a place of respect and empathy. Say things like, I understand you're feeling pressure. I know you're freaked out, but here's why this is important. You can read more at globalnews.ca. 
So she is part of the chosen, the elite. And this tweet here just got me laughing. No, no, we can't let anyone think they're like me or you, she says to her fancy people. I love it, I love it, I love it that the peasants are going to be allowed to get verified. Now, I, I read a report that General Motors is questioning whether it wants to even advertise anymore on Twitter. Yeah, it could be. I'm not sure if that report's even accurate. But then again, when you remember that Elon Musk is also the CEO of Tesla, which has a larger market capitalization than General Motors and is generally eating their lunch when it comes to electric cars. Maybe that's on their mind as well. Um, Elon Musk took over the company and he has publicly mused about slashing the workforce by as much as three quarters. There's an implication there that a lot of people at Twitter are not actually engineers doing anything useful, but they're rather woke bureaucrats who are busy banning people. I think I, I love the idea that Elon Musk thinks the people there are surplus. And one of the things that he's done is he's frozen the dashboard by which bureaucrats are able to censor people. He's put that on pause until the U.S. election is over. I like that a lot. Now, I don't know if you've heard about TikTok, which is a younger demographic. It's a very video-based social media app. I think the average age of a TikTok user is probably under 20. It is owned by a Chinese company called ByteDance, and it is very clear that TikTok is an asset of the People's Liberation Army, of the Chinese security services. Um, they say as much uh, in their ownership and the laws of China and their privacy statements, TikTok, uh, tracks where you are. It tracks your gestures, how you look at it. It tracks your list of friends. It tracks everything about you. And as all Chinese internet companies have to do, it allows the state security services unfettered, continuous access to all its data. So TikTok knows everything about its users. And for that reason, some in America have called for TikTok to be banned. I think it's safe to say that if TikTok is an asset of the Chinese deep state, Twitter is an asset of the CIA and the FBI. I don't think that that's a shocking thing to say. In fact, if you look at the old board of directors of Twitter, and I did this a few months ago, many of them are from the foreign policy deep state establishment. It's really weird to see all these CIA and State Department types on the board of a tech company. They don't know anything about tech. They don't know anything about computer science and engineering. They don't know anything about marketing, but that's not the value of Twitter. The value of Twitter is who is on it and what they say and what they do and what they say in their private messages. Again, if you're not a Twitter user, you might not know this, but one of the ways to talk to other Twitter users is with a direct message. It's like a private communication with someone else. But the terms of service on, on Twitter say everything you type is the property of Twitter. They own it. So if you're a politician, if you're a lawyer, if you're an activist talking to anyone else on Twitter, that private communication is owned by Twitter. You can see why the CIA and the FBI would find that very valuable. Imagine all the data. Imagine all the private messages amongst world leaders in any language. It's why there have been reports over the years of, for example, Saudi nationals spying on Twitter users for their own government, including on dissidents. There was the deep state in Twitter. Now Elon Musk owns all that. I'd say that makes him more powerful even than the finances of this do. You know, the left, whenever conservatives would complain, for example, when Twitter banned the story of Hunter Biden's laptop, which is a legitimate, factually accurate story, when Twitter 
banned that from being circulated weeks before the 2020 uh, presidential election. The conservatives obviously complained that that rigged the election, which it surely did. But the left said, well, build your own Twitter, buy your own Twitter. Well, and Elon Musk did, and they did not like that. They never meant that. They never thought anyone would actually build or buy Twitter. My rule of thumb is don't trust anyone, really. Trust your family, trust your friends, trust people you know, but I don't think you can trust politicians or big tech oligarchs. I like Elon Musk for sure, but he's not a savior. I mean, as you may know, although he has libertarian leanings and I think has some great qualities, he is a China-exposed businessman. What I mean by that is that Tesla hopes to make it big in China. They have a factory in China. And anyone who does business in China cannot rely on the rule of law. They have to rely on their relationship with the Communist Party. I do have a worry that China will put pressure on Elon Musk as the owner of Twitter to give the kind of information to the government that TikTok does, and that China could put pressure on Elon Musk to crack down on its enemies, whether it's Taiwan or Tibetans or the Falun Gong. I'm worried about it, but still, it's amazing to see, especially the freakout on the left as Twitter has stopped from putting its thumb on the scale in the lead up to the US midterm elections. Look, there are other social media companies out there. Facebook owns Instagram. YouTube owns Google. They are censorship machines. They're working with Justin Trudeau. That's not a conspiracy theory. They are part of Justin Trudeau's plans to give cash to Trudeau-approved media. As you know, Justin Trudeau has a massive media bailout, hundreds of millions of dollars of taxpayers' money, but he has coerced Google, YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram into matching him. And going forward in Canada, the number one source of revenue for journalism will be Justin Trudeau, and the number two source will be Google, YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. And they're working with Trudeau on his censorship. Justin Trudeau was asked about Elon Musk and his freedom orientation. <laughs> Trudeau had this to say. Meeting next week. reconsider how it uses Twitter given the, the takeover by Elon Musk? I think there's uh, a lot of people reflecting on the best way to continue to connect uh, with, uh, with citizens. People spend a lot of time on social media. They get much of their news and information from social media. And the government uh, will continue to make sure that we're uh, sharing what we're doing and making sure that people are getting the facts on, on issues. Uh, we will continue to evaluate how we, uh, how we choose to communicate with Canadians. That's a very passive-aggressive way of saying, yeah, well, maybe we won't do business with Twitter anymore. Imagine if Elon Musk were to make it a level playing field again for conservatives like us versus being throttled and downranked. Imagine if we at Rebel News were ever monetized, and that's one of the things Elon Musk is talking about doing, talking about letting content creators like us actually make money on Twitter. We don't make money on Twitter, but if we did, it could be a significant source of revenue. We used to make a lot of money on YouTube until five and a half years, years ago when YouTube banned us because we were too Trumpy. I think censorship is the front line of so many battles these days. It certainly was during the pandemic. I saw this terrible story in Blacklocks, one of the few independent media left in this country, about Blacklocks being threatened by other journalists in the media party club. It's all the insiders versus Blacklocks are threatening to kick them out. One of the reasons is Blacklocks criticized other journalists for taking Trudeau money, and in return, they want to silence Blacklocks. What a world 
we're in. So much has happened. Hey, I'm going to keep doing journalism in Canada. I appreciate you letting me leave the country to go to my friend Avi's wedding. You know, they say weddings are optional, funerals are mandatory, but it is such a pleasure to go to a friend's wedding and just to be there at that moment. I'm glad I went. Avi's great, and our little team in Australia is doing great, too. I want to invite you to something that's going on that you can meet our rebels here in Canada. We're setting up two conferences, one in Toronto on November 19th, one in Calgary on November 26th, a day-long conference. We're calling it Rebel News Live, and we're having amazing guest speakers, basically your favorite rebels and some of our favorite guests, everybody getting a 20-minute speech. So boom, 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 boom. Throughout the day, there'll be, I don't know, 10 or more 20-minute speeches and breakfast and lunch. It'll be fun to meet Tamara Leach. She's going to be one of our key uh keynote speakers, Arthur Pavlovsky, your favorite on-air rebels and a surprise guest I won't mention now. You can go to rebelnewslive.com and get your tickets. You can still get that early bird rate. It's a whole day. You get a light breakfast and a hearty lunch. There's merch. You can get your rebel t-shirts and stuff. I think the funnest part, besides listening to stars like Tamara Leach and Arthur Pavlovsky, will be meeting your fellow rebels your fellow Rebel fans and viewers. So please, tickets are selling fast. Go to rebelnewslive.com. I'll be at both. I'll see you there, as will much of our team. Stay with us. More ahead with Mark Morano. Welcome back. Well, I have some bad news, and it relates to media freedom. As you know, it is our tradition to send journalists to cover United Nations conferences around the world. These conferences are often lavish, luxurious affairs for the bureaucrats, diplomats, politicians, and lobbyists who attend them. We go there to do the opposite, to work hard and try and hold them to account. Because, of course, when you're at these four- and five-star get-togethers, you don't have the normal checks and balances or transparency that you would have if you're making decisions, say, in a local city council or even a national parliament. That's one of the reasons they love these get-togethers. They're amongst friends only, and they're not used to prickly questions. For nearly 10 years, Rebel News has sent Sheila Gunn-Reed and other reporters to the Global Warming Conferences hosted by the U.M. Sheila was there in Morocco very interesting footage. I don't know if you remember this from a few years ago. This made me laugh out loud. She saw a electric car charging station in the desert, leaned on it, and it bent. It was fake. It was fake. Do you remember this video? And here's what happened in Marrakesh. Well, it was exactly what I expected. In the middle of this old world city is this big, fake, plastic, tarped complex. It was a big, fake city, really built in the middle of the desert with fake plywood buildings, fake cobblestone sidewalks, acres and acres of parking lots built specially for the conference, and there were fake decorative fountains and fake restaurants. And then this. They watered the desert a couple of times per day just to keep the dust off the fancy people's expensive shoes while they walked into meetings to discuss water conservation policies and force you and me to use low-flow toilets in our home. And just to remind the climate hypocrites what sort of fakers they really are, the complex was conveniently located under the flight path to the airport as a less than subtle memory jog that they're just as addicted to fossil fuels as I am. 
there were idling limos, SUVs, and buses belonging to the international delegations. And it was all day, every day that we were there. I counted 12 buses idling in one day. And it never changed. It was constantly idling vehicles. There were trash cans and recycling bins that no one knew how to use. Now these are the same politicians writing policies that make you and I sort our garbage at home. Here they are, not following their own rules in the place where they come to make the policies about our garbage cans. There were the ancient, archaic taxis deckled up like NASCARs to promote the conference that hadn't seen a tune-up in years. And while we were out on the street watching taxis, the smog was literally choking us. And this was right in front of the conference. There were the electric car chargers that we never saw anyone use. But there was a good reason for that. When I leaned on one of them and nearly knocked it over, we discovered the chargers were fake too, like everything else at the conference. They had no batteries in them and they weren't even hooked up to anything. Oh, we learned so much. They watered the desert every morning to keep the dust off the shoes of the delegates. Then they told you that you had to conserve water. Now, the reason I mentioned Morocco, it, it's a semi-free country. It's not a totally free country, but it's not a harsh regime like, say, Iran or North Korea. That said, when Sheila asked this fair but firm question of a Canadian delegate, the Canadian government instructed the United Nations never to accredit Rebel News again. Here's the question that did it. Nice to meet you. I'm Kevin. Hi, Kevin. Hey, Joel. You got a card? Yeah. This is my staff. Great. Which organization? No, sorry, we're actually not available. We're on our way to another meeting. Well, he just agreed to speak to us. Yeah. All right. But he just agreed to speak to us. Why are you not speaking to us? Is it just us in particular? Is it just us in particular that you don't want to speak to? Is it just. Go to our next meeting? No, thank you. Why don't you want to speak to us? Did it, do I seem unpleasant or was I rude? I, go, well, I don't understand why you won't speak to us. You were just sitting there speaking to a bunch of people. Are you worried I might ask a difficult question? No. Nope. This isn't going to look good, you running away from me. You know that, right? I think that's a pretty fair question. But when we went to apply to the United Nations UN uh, Climate Conference the next year, this is what they showed us. The Canadian government had blackballed us. Well, that doesn't stop us. We continue to go to these conferences and simply report on them from outside the building. You might think that would stop us. No way. We did some of our best journalism because, of course, the delegates spill out into the streets and restaurants. Here's a clip of Sheila in Germany. I'm here at the UN Climate Change Conference in Bonn, Germany, and the entire conference is set along the banks of the Rhine River. Yesterday, right in front of the conference, we saw some pretty interesting boats. We saw a couple fuel tankers going down the river. We even saw a barge moving coal down the river. And today, right behind me, we found the Greenpeace boat. Now, it's built, specially designed, in fact, for Greenpeace to look like a sailboat but when you look up the specs of the boat you can see that it uses low sulfur diesel those masts there they don't really hold sails 
they hold signs. That's the only useful thing that those masks do. Like everything else here at the Climate Change Conference, this is just an optical illusion behind me. Greenpeace, just like you and I, need fossil fuels to get their job done too. And here she is in Poland. We're here in Katowice, Poland, covering the United Nations Climate Change Conference. We're not allowed inside the conference because the Canadian government asked the United Nations to ban us, and of course, the United Nations complied. So we're doing a lot of coverage from outside the conference. And I think it's equally important to cover the people of Katowice and their response to the United Nations as it is to cover anything that the United Nations does. We're at the Christmas market in downtown Katowice. And we noticed a few things right off the hop while we were here. There's a lot of overt symbols of Christianity here. A massive uh, nativity scene, lots of Christmas ornaments, angels. It is very, very Christian. There's a lot of iconography here. But there's another very important thing that we noticed here, and is it is the lack of security, the lack of police presence, the lack of military presence, and the lack of Angela Merkel's diversity barriers. You see, these Christmas markets here in Poland, they are not targets for Islamic terrorism the way Christmas markets in Germany and the rest of Western Europe are, because Poland has a strong commitment to strong borders. They stand firmly against mass Muslim migration. In fact, there's the ongoing consensus here in Poland that their country is headed towards too much secularization when up to 90% of the population is practicing Catholic. So our experience here on the ground is that Poland is a very, very safe place and that's due in strong part to their commitment to strong borders, which is in stark contrast to the things the United Nations wants Poland to do with their United Nations compact on migration. My point is that didn't stop us at all, but Egypt, Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, which is this year's location for the Global Warming Conference, it's a different thing. Because if you don't have official press credentials and you try doing accountability-style journalism like we specialize in, it's not the German police or the Scottish police or the Mexican police. We're talking about police in a semi-free or unfree country that they are not gentle. And we consulted a lawyer in Cairo and another lawyer, and we were left with the belief that if we went to do our accountability-style journalism at the UN Global Warming Conference this year, as we have in years past, that we ran a real risk of our reporters being thrown in jail. And I simply was not willing to let that happen. However, we have a friend on the inside who is officially credentialed, not as a journalist, but rather as an NGO. You know who I'm talking about, because he's been going to these global warming conferences before even we've been. I think he's been to pretty much all of them. His name is Mark Morano. He's the boss of ClimateDepot.com. I think he probably knows more about the global warming wars than anyone else. And I'm delighted to have him join us now via Skype from the Washington, D.C. area before he hops on a plane to Egypt tomorrow. Mark, great to see you. Thank you, Ezra. Happy to be here. And yeah, I've been going to these since 2002. This will be my 20th year, I guess. Uh, uh, it, uh, the first one I went to was the Earth Summit in uh, 
Johannesburg, South Africa. That was the summit where Colin Powell, the national security advisor to George Bush, got booed by the UN delegation. And Robert Mugabe, the brutal dictator seizing white-owned farmland, was cheered and praised by all the delegates at that conference. <laughs> well, listen, global warming is like a Rorschach test. It's like an ink blot. You can use it to justify whatever left-wing scheme you want, from socialism and communism yeah. to lockdowns to race theory. I mean, it really is the uh, everything sauce for the left. You can justify everything and anything in the name of climate these days, can't you? You can, and they do. A new study out today is talking about how rainbows, I think, are going to be more frequent due to climate change. That sounds wonderful. Uh, <laughs> well, then, of course, you see the studies that say autumn leaves will be duller. Autumn leaves will be more colorful. And then there's the studies that say uh, the fog will be more fog, less fog. And they go through the, they make so many contradictory studies, Ezra, that no matter what happens, they're right. It's like yeah. picking two teams to win at the big sporting <laughs> event. You could always say, I picked the winner. That's and they're right. right. So the, you... mod, the climate models worked no matter what happened. <laughs> you know, it's really funny. And you and I have talked about a dozen in, uh, times about th th that kookiness. But I want to talk about Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt itself. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I mean, if you believe in the concept of the United Nations, and, and I'm not sure if I do, but if you believe in a place where countries can meet together, countries that aren't necessarily the best of friends, you're going to have some rough characters there. I mean, it's like Shimon Peres uh, of Israel said, you make peace with your enemies, not your friends. So if you're going to meet at an international meeting, you're going to have some rough customers. And I'd say Egypt is a rough-ish customer. Not the, they're not a tyranny, but they're not free either. And I'm a little upset that we can't send our reporters because there's a real risk of them being arrested. I think it's actually, in a way, Canada's fault, though, because they instructed the UN not to accredit us. If we were accredited like you are, I think our yeah. journalists would probably be safe. But Canada told the UN, do not let rebel news in. Wow. I mean, yeah. So uh, we're going, as you mentioned, as an NGO. I've gone as media in the past to these. I've actually, you know, little known fact, I was actually banned for life as well from the UN. The same year, Morocco, uh, that she found, I guess, the fake uh, solar generator, electric car generators, Sheila Gunn Reed found that. I did the cardboard cutout of Donald Trump with a paper shredder, and I literally shredded the United Nations Paris Climate Agreement. This would have been in November 2016 a week after Donald Trump was elected or won the election. And I was immediately descended upon by armed United Nations climate cops. Hmm. They marched me and Craig Rucker, a CFACT, out into the desert. We had to wander several football field lengths. And then they came back around the armed climate uh, police and they seized all the papers from my book bag, my briefcase. Huh. And so and then, of course, we got banned. Now, the following year, we had to do a, uh, you know, a, a, a I am sorry letter and meeting and we did all that so we have to really behave and watch ourselves according to un protocols even though none of the other ngos ever have to watch themselves and behave if you mm -hmm. if you err on the correct side of the policy you're given a free pass mm -hmm. so we're looking forward to it and i believe with the news that rebel news isn't going to be there i don't know that there'll be any other dissenting voices anywhere in all Egypt during this conference. I'm not aware of anyone who's going. Any Republicans that go in the U.S. will probably be supporting the U.N. agreement. That's how pathetic many in the Republican Party have become.
Huh. You know what? You're right. And hearing you say that makes me sad because I've enjoyed the fact that we have been independent, skeptical journalists. I mean, we just got back from another UN event in Berlin, Germany, the World Health Summit. We just got back from the C40 Mayor's Summit in Buenos Aires, which is a climate anti-fossil fuel, anti-meat summit. So we love being the only independent people in a room, Mark. And now you're making me sad when I realize we won't be there in Egypt. I just, you know, the the idea, God forbid, may it never happen, of our people being arrested and put in an Egyptian jail. Uh, I just could, I couldn't risk that. I wouldn't risk that for myself, and I would certainly not risk that for our wonderful staff like Sheila. It makes me a little bit sad, but, you know, that's that's the UN for you, and that's Egypt. And the, what you said happened to you in Morocco uh, is a reminder that this is real. They will have armed police come and arrest you if you do something anti-climate. It's just a fact in some of these countries. It's it's a shocking reminder what you went through. And I think you're sort of tough, like you're you're savvy and you know, worldly. I mean, not that Sheila isn't, but I wouldn't want some of our younger journalists to be put through what you were put through in Morocco. Yeah, and I'm, you know, frankly, well, we'll see. I, I may end up seeing the inside of an Egyptian jail cell. Knock on wood, actually, yeah. there's a metal table, but who knows what's going to happen. I, I intend to cover this. I mean, this is going to be, I call it the cover your rear end summit. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're seeing the entire United Nations climate agenda, the fruits of it laid bare across of Europe, across Canada, across the United States. We're seeing the intentional shutdown of energy with energy blackouts. We're seeing intentional collapse of our agricultural system with the net zero goal of collapsing modern high yield agriculture and collapsing animal agriculture, making meat rare and expensive per the United Nations goals. We're seeing the collapse of transportation with the banning of gas powered cars and mandating of electric cars, making all the world kind of like the vintage car capital of Cuba or like uh, Eastern Germany, East Germany, where they only had one government approved car. No, not the electric car, but the old crappy East German Trabant. Right. And then, of course, we're seeing the collapse of our free speech rights as as our literally as a corporate government collusion globally are making sure that governments aren't necessarily violating your free speech. They're farming it out to their uh, in collusion with big corporate partners. So. You look around the world and you see wood more valuable than gold in Europe. You see forests being felled. You see massive blackouts and possible high death rates among particularly seniors. And what is the U.N. going to do? They're going to double down, as is Joe Biden and, and I'm sure Justin Trudeau, and say this is a great opportunity, all this chaos, to now have a great, a faster transition than we thought. And that's the insanity that is the United Nations conference in Egypt that I'll be attending. Yeah, you know, when the new chancellor of Germany met with Justin Trudeau, he practically begged Canada to replace Russian conflict oil and gas with Canadian ethical oil and gas. But Trudeau said, no, no, we're going to help you with clean, green technologies. Yeah, they don't need that, brother. They need natural gas. Let me ask you this, because I was, you know, I spent some time a couple weeks ago going through that detailed New York Times poll, and I say New York Times poll because it was shockingly full of bad news for Biden and the midterm Democrats. And to see it in the New York Times means that some people on the left know they're in trouble. Everyone's worried about the economy. I mean, the, the top three concerns were all synonyms for the economy, jobs, inflation, affordability, you know, uh, growth. 
And climate change was so far down. By the way, the pandemic was less than 0.5%. No one in America is concerned about that other than the media class. But here's the thing. The U.S. midterms are, are days away. Americans are rightly riveted to their own prosperity. Is Joe Biden gonna do or say anything goofy, either personally or through his surrogate, John Kerry, his his climate ambassador, that will confirm in the mind, say of Pennsylvania, there's a lot of, it's a real battleground this year, Pennsylvania, the Senate, the governor. Um, There's a real battleground. Are you gonna have John Kerry saying, I'm against fracking? Are you gonna have Joe Biden saying, we gotta get off of oil? Are they going to do something dumb in these final days of the midterm campaign? I don't think, particularly not in Pennsylvania, I think they got the message there. Uh, Dr. Oz, his opponent, the the Republican, is surging in Virginia, in Pennsylvania. And probably part of the reason is is that his opponent has has had a stroke and has been all over the place on uh, fracking as well. You know, he had multiple incidences of saying he wanted to ban fracking, and now in his post-stroke addled mental state, he tried to, he tried to literally say, I, I'm for fracking now. He could barely get the sentence out. So I think they'll be careful, but there's an important thing here. Joe Biden is going to this UN summit in Egypt three days after the midterms. So you may ask, that's Oh, odd. he's going after. He's going after. Now here's the key. He's going because where else, where else but to go to Egypt to get away after your party takes what looks to be a likely bloodbath in the midterm elections. That's a great escape for Joe Biden and probably the number one reason he's attending this conference in person. Isn't that funny? So the timing, he's timing it so he goes afterwards to get away from his party and so he can make an announcement before, after the votes were in. You mentioned two things I just want to show our viewers. First is here's what I think was the most important exchange between Joe Biden and Donald Trump in the 2020 leadership debates in America. When Biden says, I want to transition off oil and gas, Trump said, are you serious? And Biden said, yeah, he really meant it. Look at this exchange. Remember this? One final question. Would he close down the oil industry? Would you close down the oil industry? By the way, I would transition from the oil industry, yes. Oh, I would transition. That is a big statement. That's a Because I would stop. Why would you do that? Because the oil industry pollutes significantly. I see. Here's the deal. That's a big statement. Well, if you let me finish the statement, because it has to be replaced by renewable energy over time, over time. And I'd stop giving to the oil industry. I'd stop giving them federal subsidies. He won't give federal subsidies to the to the gas, excuse me, to the to uh, solar and wind. Yeah. Why are we giving it to oil industry? We actually do give it to solar and wind. He takes everything out of context. But the point is, look, we have to move toward a net zero emissions. The first place to do that by the year 2035 is in energy production by 2050 totally. Well, he's doing it. It's sort of weird because he's begging Venezuela and Saudi Arabia to make more oil. So he's not against oil. He's just against American oil. And here's that. You mentioned that candidate Fetterman in Pennsylvania who had a stroke. I just want to show a clip of him all over the map on fracking. And I've been to Western Pennsylvania. That state was saved economically by the fracking boom. Here's Fetterman, who, I mean, the guy, I think he's being victimized, really. Why would you run a stroke victim as your candidate? I suppose you could say, why would you run an Alzheimer's victim as your president? But here's Fetterman. Take a look. The moment that stands out that they keep using over and over again is your comment about 
fracking, your answer to the fracking question. Here it is. There is that 2018 interview that you said, quote, I don't support fracking at all. So how do you square the two? I, I, I do support fracking, and I don't, I don't, I support fracking, and I stand, and I do support fracking. Do you understand why people are now questioning your ability to be our senator from the state of Pennsylvania because of moments like that? No, I, I, I believe that, that my support of fracking has always been been one that in the past uh, was some of the environmental concerns. In 2018, when running for lieutenant governor, you said, I don't support fracking at all, and I never have. So to be clear, lieutenant governor, do you support fracking now? Yeah, uh, no, the, 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 all, of the, all of the reservations that I had with fracking were all about the environmental concerns. And Pennsylvania passed some of the strongest envir environmental regulations, uh, and that is now, you know, means that 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 you know, I've been very supportive about fracking because uh, energy independence is critical, uh, and that gets more and more important, you know, given in light of the the Ukraine war, uh, to make sure that we can't be uh, at, at a hostage to a nation like like Russia. Um, again, it's it's all it was all about the environmental uh, issues, and again, after the regulations passed, uh, it's it's a no-brainer to support fracking, and I've been been very so a strong supporter of, of fracking. Gee whiz! Quick, give me a give me a prediction. Uh, we're shifting gears from climate politics to politics. Politics. How's it going to go on election day? Tell me your calls for some of the key states. I think. Ron DeSantis is going to win handsomely in Florida. I don't even yeah. think that's in question. What do you think of Pennsylvania? Because I know you know that state well. What do you think the House and the Senate, will they? what will the outcomes be? I just want to hear your predictions because I know it's going to make me feel better. Okay. I mean, I do predict that Oz is going to beat Fetterman. The Republican will win in Pennsylvania. And I think a lot of it, sadly, has to do with uh, he's a stroke victim and was so embarrassingly incompetent in that last debate that I don't even think, I think it's got to depress the Pennsylvania voters. But I think overall, and I think Arizona, people like Carrie Lake, the governor is going to win despite the national attention and people like Liz Cheney going there to stop her. I do believe it, it, it may rival 2010 at this point, given the state of our economy, given the state of energy, given Joe Biden is unpopularity and given just this momentum that's happening. And a lot of this is even COVID related. Uh, there's a reckoning, I think, now from, and we saw this in my state, home state of Virginia, with the whole idea of the lockdowns and the vac vaccine mandates and the mask mandates and, and even things like critical race theory with children and transgender ideology. This is all coming home to roast, roost for the Democratic Party. It looks like a perfect storm. The issue, of course, is election integrity. If this were a normal year, Pre-COVID, I would predict a massive, confidently, a massive Republican takeover of the Senate and the House, governors, huge historic gains. But because a lot of these shenanigans of the easy mail-in voting and all that's still accessible, I'm going to hesitate a little uh, and see. Now, one of the big factors is, uh, Ezra, you may not be aware of that, that just coming out and polling here in the United States is African-Americans are very unmotivated to vote in this midterm election. They are not happy with the Democratic Party. And all indications are if they were to stay home, that would even be a bigger bloodbath than many of these polls are indicating. Hmm. 
Well, it's very exciting. We'll look forward to that. Mark Morano, great to see you. Stay safe in Egypt. And maybe we can even get you doing a few videos from there because yeah, be it's to, just yeah. too risky for us to be there. Take care, my I'll, friend. I'll, and go ahead. Uh, we're, we got a, it's at a resort on the Red Sea in right. Sharm El Sheikh. So I might be doing it with sunglasses and one of those drinks with a little umbrella <laughs> in it, but I'll be happy to do segment for you here. Because one thing the UN knows how to do is throw a party. Yeah. Ask Sheila, it's absolutely true. That's the one thing they know how to do. Lavish parties, they fly in chefs, caviar, champagne. There've been many articles, the carbon footprint of these conferences exceeds mm -hmm. entire African nations hmm. for annual output for a year. Wow. Yeah, you're right. I mean, Cairo is one of the world's biggest cities. It's an ancient city. I've never been, but it, it looks wonderful and fascinating. Sharm El Sheikh is a resort town, so obviously the UN types, that's where they're going to go. We'll, we'll talk to you. I know you'll be working, even if you are uh, having the odd pina colada. Take care, my friend. Safe travels. Thank you, Ezra. Appreciate it. All right. There you have it. Mark Morano. He's the boss of ClimateDepot.com, and he was accredited as an NGO, so he's safe. We couldn't get that accreditation, so it would just be too risky for us. Forgive me for making that decision. Stay with us. More ahead. You know what? I'm sorry that we won't be able to send our journalists to Egypt. I just want to be careful. And talking to the lawyer in Cairo, you know, um, I just don't have a comfort with sending people like Sheila Gunn-Reed into a situation where the, the possibility of them being jailed is as high as it is in Egypt. If we were accredited like Morano, Mark Morano, I wouldn't worry about it. But the combination of the UN not accrediting us, Canada denouncing us, and us trying to do accountability journalism in a partly free country like Egypt is just too much risk. It's not even just the risk of being sent home. I wouldn't want our people in an Egyptian jail because I don't think they treat reporters very nice over there if they regard them as a critic of the regime. It makes me sad, but that's the world we're in. Of course, I do blame Egypt, which has the quasi-police state, but I mainly blame Canada for blackballing us, don't you think? That's our show for today. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night. And keep fighting for freedom. Which has consequences at having us risk uh, more lockdowns because they haven't chosen to get vaccinated yet, that there will be consequences for those people in not being able to go to a gym or a restaurant, not being able to go to a movie theater, not being able to get on a train or a plane. Millions of Albertans celebrated in close contact with loved ones. We simply cannot afford a repeat scenario. So my message is simple. Please follow the rules that are in place. I wasn't allowed to get any of this government money that they were giving everybody because I hadn't been open a year. So I couldn't prove my income. I couldn't prove nothing here. So now we get to open and then they close us again. And it's really hard on our businesses, especially the new ones who have fired up because they haven't had the opportunity to, to get any of the uh, the help that the federal government is, is offering because they're new businesses, so they have no criteria to meet. So it's been difficult on them, and we like to keep them open if we can. Premier Daniel Smith has recently apologized for the sins of the previous leader of her own party here in Alberta. Former United Conservative Party leader and Premier Jason Kenney oversaw some of the toughest lockdown crackdowns in the Western world. Pastors were arrested in front of their children.
Others were taken down in El Chapo-style arrests. Others turned themselves in. One had his church seized, all for the crime of keeping their church doors open to all during the pandemic. And business owners forced to make survival decisions to defy lockdowns on their own dining rooms, to save their businesses, to pay their bills. Well, they were sometimes arrested, jailed, repeatedly harassed by inspectors, and issued huge fines and summonses. Premier Smith's apology and her promise to investigate how best to provide lockdown amnesty. I can apologize right now. I'm, I'm, I'm deeply sorry for anyone who was inappropriately subjected to um, discrimination as a result of their vaccine status. I'm deeply sorry for any government employee that was fired from their job because of their vaccine status. And I welcome them back if they want to come back. As for the amnesty, I have to get some legal advice on that. Um, and so I've already asked my staff to, um, to, to request that advice so I can see how we would be able to proceed on that. My view has been that these were um, political decisions that were made, and so I think that they can be political decisions to offer a reversal. But I, I do want to get some, some legal advice on that first. Would that also have to do with the timeline for the proposed amnesties? Um, I, I, I would have to see if, you know, if I can, if I can do it, I will do it at the earliest opportunity. So I'm, I'm hoping within the next, within the next week, I'll get that legal advice. Thank you. Thank you. Has come too late for a lot of businesses, including one we were able to help through your generous donations to fightthefines.com. That's a project where crowdfunded lawyers are provided at no cost to help businesses, pastors, and regular people fight their lockdown tickets in court. Do you remember Debbie from the Tipsy Cow in Hannah, Alberta? When the government told her that she would have to pivot her pub to takeout only, she knew there was no way she could make a go of it. So she kept her doors open and her community supported her through it. But the fines and the harassment forced her to comply. Fight the Fines lawyer Chad Williamson from Williamson Law, though, was able to help Debbie get her lockdown tickets tossed out. I wouldn't exactly call this one a victory. Despite summoning the hammer of justice to screech down from the sky upon government bureaucrats like the bird, which is the bald eagle, and our office successfully nuking four public health act and regulatory charges, the tipsy cow is no more. The mandates killed them. Government overreach has shuttered another friendly rural Alberta family business for good. We saw this with outlaws and with other restaurants involved in the righteous rebellion against tyranny over the past two years. Bittersweet indeed. After you've taken somebody's livelihood, I mean, what's left? Well, law enforcement thought that piling regulatory charges on an already terminal small business uh, was the next appropriate step. Obviously, we didn't and we did our job, as we always do, defending the good from the forces of old and evil in this province. And although Debbie will no longer need to stress about the regulatory charges we had the Crown withdraw, the future is uncertain. Now, perhaps there's been too little too late done in that respect. And while we always celebrate legal victories, of which we've scored so many over the past two years, this one stings and is certainly hollow and devoid of joy. Our office will mourn the loss of the tipsy cow, the same way we've mourned the erosion of our civil rights and our civil liberties, uh, especially over the past uh, couple months and the past couple years.
Now, we wish Debbie a gentle journey on the trail, uh, and we're hoping things will not just turn around for her, but will turn around for all Albertans on the tumultuous path that lies ahead for us all. So that's great news for Debbie, but unfortunately, the forced closure of her business by the province to comply with the lockdowns resulted in the permanent closure of her business. The government put her out of business. Debbie's just one of thousands of Alberta businesses who could not survive the government lockdowns. It wasn't COVID that got them. It was COVID hysteria. And each and every one of these people, just like Debbie, well, the promise of Alberta was stolen from them. This is a place of opportunity, entrepreneurialism, and freedom. It's in our motto, strong and free. But Alberta was not those things for the last two years. So let's make sure Premier Daniel Smith keeps her word and returns Alberta to what we once were. If you agree with me, go to LockdownAmnesty.com and sign our petition to Daniel Smith, calling on her to toss out the lockdown prosecutions, regulatory offenses and fines before more dreams like Debbie's are stolen. For Rebel News, I'm Sheila Gunn-Reed. To sign our petition calling on Premier Daniel Smith to keep her word to end the lockdown prosecutions, go to LockdownAmnesty.com.